You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today is a journalist and editor of more than 20 years. In 1995, she was named the Guardian Student Journalist of the Year after launching a magazine while at the University of East Anglia. She landed her first post on Fleet Street at the same title, joining as a columnist and features assistant, before moving to the Evening Standard and then British Vogue, where she served as deputy editor. Describing her time at the Fashion Bible, she said, Vogue was unbelievably fun and glamorous. I took for granted how much support I had, plus the parties I went to, the clothes I had access to, the people I met. In 2013, a picture she posted to Instagram for her sister on her wedding day went viral. The reason? Her brother-in-law, David Cameron, the then Prime Minister, was napping in the background. But these days she is in the news for another reason, as the editor of the Evening Standard, one of a raft of new female newspaper editors. She has taken the reins at a challenging time. Her predecessor, George Osborne, describes the current pandemic as the paper's greatest crisis. My guest today is Emily Sheffield. So, Emily, thank you very much for joining us today. On this podcast, we like to begin by briefly talking about your early life. One question we ask most people is, ultimately, would you describe your childhood as a happy one? Uh, Mostly, yes. Uh, As a child, definitely. I grew up in the countryside with my mother and my stepfather. I have an amazing stepfather. Lots of younger siblings. I was outside the whole time. I had huge imagination. I was always running around the garden pretending to be uh, an animal, actually. That's my biggest memory of my childhood. My teen years, I guess, I became more frustrated. I think I was always one of those people who wanted to grow up very fast and wanted the big adult life. So my teen years, I sort of remember being one more of frustration, of wanting to move on and get a job and get out there and sneak up to London and all those sort of things. You mentioned your teen years. It's been written about previously in interviews that you've given that you attended Marlborough, but you left there after they found cannabis in your room. Did you have to tell your parents what had happened or does the school tell your parents when you get in trouble like that? Uh, The school told my parents. It was an early insight into tabloids, actually. I suppose that was my early press experience. The Daily Mail was camped outside our house for two weeks. Yeah, I was trying to get into Cambridge at the time, not smoking a lot. The story behind it is one I haven't told before. I had actually turned down this boy who wanted to ask me out. And he was the deputy prefect at the time. And he then reported to the head prefect that I was a cocaine dealer. Now, I had not gone near any cocaine. I was 18 and I should tell this story, but anyway, I'm going to. And they then reported it to the headmaster. Now, it was well known at the time at Marlborough that there was, you know, quite a lot of cannabis being smoked. And I wasn't smoking very much of it. But teachers were turning a blind eye to it in many houses. But obviously the cocaine element freaked them out. So they targeted me with sniffer dogs and and then obviously, you know, it hit the papers. And But I suppose my overriding memory was that... As revenge goes for refusing to go out with someone, it was pretty effective. Uh, (laughs) Um, Did he ever apologise? No, I I found out this many, like three or four years later, that that is how it had all come about. And it was quite shocking. You were like, 
God, Jesus, do boys really mind when you turn them down for a That's date? That's awful. <laughs> uh, like you say, it does have, it obviously has a big impact. Yeah. I actually hadn't even been aware that it had been so much in the tabloids at the time. No, it had a huge impact, but it also meant I, I you know, I failed getting into Cambridge. I, I messed up my A-levels. You know, my son is 16 now and I, I'm having all these conversations with him around alcohol and drugs and, and I just try and tread a sort of sensible line with him. I think my parents at the time, poor things, were really frightened. There was quite a lot of drug addiction in various arms of the family and, and, and they sort of dragged me off to a therapist who sat there saying, you know, you are going to be a massive addict. And I sort of knew, I knew that I wouldn't be. I just, I'm just not that person. I've never even been addicted to cigarettes. It's very frightening for parents when children dabble in, in drugs of any sort. And, you know, I, I think a lot of us, having gone through it ourselves, I, I try to have more nuanced conversations with my son, I suppose. So it has, in a way, led to, I suppose, not a positive side, but it means that you can bring something to a conversation, perhaps, that without that experience, you may not have been able to. Yes. Be careful how you turn boys down for dates. <laughs> God, did you ever confront him? We should move on in the podcast. I'm just now very curious. No, I've never had the chance to bump into him. I might add his older brother is a very famous historian, but I can't give his name for legal reasons. We'll leave it there. We'll leave it there. No. I'll shut up now. Should we move but on? Another subject for another day. <laughs> now, um, you mentioned missing out on the university you had first uh, planned to go to, but you went on to study at the University of East Anglia, and you also won Student Journalist of the Year, I understand. So did you no, know... I, I, I edited, um, I edited a magazine. It was a political, uh, it was a satirical political magazine called Bucket of Tongues. And that won the Guardian Media Magazine Award. And I launched it and we raised money for it. Um, it was very successful, actually. Carried on for many years after I left. So I guess that was my first foray into journalism. Was it from doing that experience that you realised you wanted to be a journalist or did you have it in your mind already? Uh, no, I sort of switched after university to wanting to work in film and television. I had a disastrous year working in a production company. I realised that was not my role. <laughs> but all the time was still trying to get a job at The Guardian because The Guardian was sort of having meetings with me because I'd won the award. And yeah, I joined The Guardian a year, a year after I left university. When I was doing Bucket of Tongues, and I suppose that's what has led me, I always wanted, I was always incredibly clear I wanted to be editor, is that because I'd launched my own thing and oversaw the business side the graphics, commissioning all the journalism, I suppose I've never moved away from that ambition to be editor. I like overseeing the whole, and I think that's where my skills lie. Now, you did, um, through all those meetings, eventually get a job at The Guardian, didn't you? Yeah. And how was that experience? What was it like climbing the greasy pole when you start out? And perhaps, I mean, from my own experience, you obviously have these quite grand ideas of journalism when, when you're thinking about your dream career. And then normally the first job or two isn't quite perhaps what people envision. God, again, I could... <laughs> I don't know whether I can say stuff or not. <laughs> journalistic side of me always wants to bring the truth out my first two years at the guardian uh, it was like my dream getting it i really liked alan rusbridger he interviewed me a lot i got given this column called jackdaw i was incredibly scared my first day i think i was 22 i had, I had a very mixed time at the guardian i i had amazing friends there i got an amazing experience my first day was a little challenging and I'm glad to say and I think on the theme of there being lots of female editors now is that this will not happen anymore and probably hasn't done for a while but my immediate male boss on my first day 
said to me, and this is not Alan Rusbridger, turned his head to the whole of the features floor and said, um, well, we all know the only reason you're here is because Alan Rusbridger wants to F-U-C-K you and he did not spell it out. And I'm like, wow. Set the tone. <laughs> so that was my first day. So that went brilliantly. I didn't say anything. There was a part of me that wanted to email it to Alan and go, look, do you know this is what's being said to me? You, you hired me as a female voice in your paper. But of course, the overriding sense is you've got to get on with everybody. You can't start your job by getting someone fired. So I did. And Kath Viner actually started, had just started as I did. And she was a few years older than me and completely brilliant. Actually, she was incredibly friendly, really brilliant. And so I looked to people like her for guidance, actually. And I, I had dinner with her as a sort of point of pride, I suppose. I had dinner with her to last week just to sort of say... I mean, she did it five years ago, but sort of, I suppose, you know, I got there in the end. Yeah. As I touched on the introduction, as you mentioned now, it is quite nice. I think if you think about, I think there was a point when you were thinking about the big newspapers and you're like, oh, is there a female editor? And now it feels as though, you know, actually, if you name some of the big brands, they just, they just do have females in charge. So did you have a throwback with Catherine? You know, we've got, we've, you know, there are five female editors now. I think we've got complete parity. I think there's five male editors of nationals. I suppose you can say the standard's not a national, but it's, it's, you know, we've got bigger readership than a lot of them. You know, I think that's an incredible achievement. I think there's a lot more to go on diversity, but, you know, we, we're getting there. We're definitely getting there. there. There were none. There were none when I joined The Guardian. Lots of deputy editors, but there were no female editors. Do you all have a female editor club now, the five, or not? we're not quite there? Well, Kath was saying, actually, we were laughing about the rule of six, saying that we could manage it because there were five of us. And she was saying, oh, I suppose, because I think out of the current five, she, she was the first. So she was saying, you know, I should, maybe it's up to me to call a lunch with us all. I would really, I would like that. I, th- I think that would be really nice. But, you know, it's also we're all sort of battling with the news. It's certainly um, a busy time to be an you editor can just right do, now. It might end up being a mass Zoom call <laughs> once we're all locked down again. Um, now, just uh, going back to your career, I wanted to talk about, so you um, were at The Guardian and then obviously I think you're, in terms of your career, you're very well known for your time at Vogue. So I was wondering if you could talk us through ultimately the transition. I mean, I studied magazine journalism, but I think to lots of people, newspapers feel very different to uh, what are seen as glossy magazines, if that makes sense. Well, I suppose I did. I mean, I did move to The Standard after The Guardian and Max Hastings was was editor and Nicola Giel, who's the editor of The Saturday Times, amongst many things she does with The Times, uh, was my immediate boss, and I absolutely adored her. And she, and uh, she was actually when I announced getting this job, she was the first person I rang to say hi. She made a very funny joke. She said, uh, "She said, are you are you ringing to ask if I can be your assistant?" Because <laughs> the answer's no. And she was my boss here, and she used to do awful things like send me out into the street pretending to be Cher wearing a foil in my hair and a sort of face mask and make me wander up and down High Street Ken interviewing people. I think a share had just done that in Hollywood. I had, so I had a great time here, but we did, I did quite a lot of serious news here as well. But I think under her, I started learning how to craft features. And then I went to America for the standard. I landed 10 days in, the towers fell. So I was reporting on that for the standard. And then when I returned, I was married and soon after pregnant. And I came back to the standard under Veronica. But then 
I, I, God, I can't even remember now how it happened. I just remember thinking that fashion looked like a really exciting space and approached Vogue to get a job. I saw that the, the features director was go, going on maternity leave and I arrived and I was pregnant myself. And it just sort of started from there. I got on really well with Alex. And then six months later, she offered me the deputy role. Vogue at that time, Alex had already been there 10 years. So there were staffers there who'd been there a long time who I admit the fashion world still then was a very closed space. So I think was sort of horrified that this rather uncouth newspaper journalist had landed this big role at the Fashion Bible. Alex was a really sort of open thinker and she wanted to open fashion up to people. It was one of the things she did as an editor, actually. Yeah, and I ended up staying for 13 years, which, I mean, believe me, I, I, I never expected. I didn't even take the pension out because I always had this thought I was going to leave. I'm still like that. I always sort of think things don't last. So I look back and I, I'm fairly staggered I stayed there as long as I did, actually. Now, you mentioned some, I suppose, some of the preconceptions, the ways mm. people think about the fashion world. And I think particularly Vogue, I mean, it's the most prestigious fashion title. And I think lots of people have opinions of what working for, yeah. for Vogue must be like. I think some of those have been informed by films such as the devil wears Prada. Yeah, I mean, Alex is not like that. But yeah, I mean, I think Anna Winter is a bit like that from my experience of meeting her anyway. Yeah, so I was just wondering, what, what is a day working for Vogue really like just for those readers who perhaps have, I mean, is it as glamorous as people would presume it is? Does everyone wear designer clothes I think to the there, there are elements that are, yes. Yeah, yes, they definitely wear, they do. The stylists in the office wear the most incredible clothes and I'm so glad I don't feel that pressure anymore. Only after I left did I realise how much my morning outfit was slightly obsessing me in an unhealthy way. The, the daily grind in the office, I mean, we worked incredibly hard and made incredible, you know, the Vogue made incredible money in the years I was there with Alex. But yes, there were also very, very glamorous elements to it, which I won't forget and will definitely remember on my deathbed. Going to Paris was always unbelievably glamorous. And yes, you'd be working hard, rushing from show to show, writing show reports in the back of the car, feeling a bit sick. But once you became accepted as part of that fashion crowd, you were basically hanging out with a bunch of mates front row and then being invited to these incredible dinners in Paris and this was the boom time of fashion when those big houses were making a lot of money and things like I was flown to, to, to Tokyo for two days where I saw things and ate places and was given access by Vuitton that there's no way you would do that even as an incredibly well-heeled tourist and again you're there with a flock of people you you know pretty well and you're having a really good time so yeah, looking back, it was sort of, it was kind of staggering some of the stuff I did. And you just can't imagine it now. I, I think fashion, uh, the impact on the planet was already beginning on fashion. And I think the pandemic's going to have a really brutal effect on the fashion world. We're seeing it now. I, I, I don't think, I don't think that were of shows and flying around the world and all that money being, I, I think it's gone. I mean, it's definitely gone. Yeah, particularly when all these brands take a big public stance. And I'm glad I was there. I mean, because I was very fortunate. When it comes to, have to your time at Vogue coming to an end, as you say, you were there for a very long time. Particularly, you think about journalism periods at publications. But then the Alex Schulman leaves, a new editor, Edward Enfield, is is appointed. You end up leaving the publication. I think often with newspapers and magazines, if you're the deputy editor and then a new editor comes in and I suppose you haven't been put in that role. Does it feel as though your time might be up in a way because often they want to come in and bring in their own person? 
I just think it's different. I, 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 I really do. I just think it's different. I think Edward actually kept quite a number of the staff and, and removed others. And I wanted to go. Yeah, I'd been there long enough. And, 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 and much of me had thought that I should have left many years before. I had young children at home. That was part of it. I didn't really want to go back into the newspaper world with young children at home. David, I, I wanted to avoid, I suppose, being in a newspaper where I might see my family sort of shredded on a daily basis. You know, would you want to, you know, that would be a sort of loyalty split for me. So I suppose Vogue was a sort of safe haven. I have to say that when I got the job here, I never for a second thought I was going to come in and bring my own team. My my thought was come in and, and, and meet people if you can. Actually, that proved to be quite hard because everyone was working from home, but I did my best. Because I, I strongly believe that most organisations have huge wells of talent and that... Uh, leadership and direction can often reshape things to what you know every editor is going to bring in a new feel um, and a new direction and they've got they have different strengths and different things they feel passionate about but yeah I, you know I think everyone who arrives feels differently Edward actually only brought in a, a, a small number of people and I suppose just surrounding your departure at Vogue the one thing I wanted is obviously as you say you wanted to go you've never got a very you know senior new position but how did you feel about some of the I suppose the way it was framed at the time because it did seem to be a bit of a narrative like purge of the posh girls did that rile you at all no it didn't I just sort of let it all wash over me actually I regret that it became like that you know there were a couple of individuals who um, set off that uh, series of events and I think it turned the whole thing into a circus but yeah once once it was in motion I was a bit like right there's no stopping this (laughs) I seem to remember a very big spread in this very newspaper, actually, uh, un- with putting me under the headline of Posh Girl Exodus. I mean, <laughs> you, you just have to take it all with a pinch of salt. I, 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 knew, I knew I'd done a good job there. I knew I'd fought to change diversity there. And yeah, I, I, you just let, it, let this stuff slide over. You know, it's, it's yesterday's news pretty quickly. So you mentioned earlier, obviously, tabloids from an early age. You reference obviously, having a family that were in the news a lot um in terms of your uh, brother and all your sister Samantha Cameron yeah do you think yeah. you've developed quite a thick skin into because I mean you're saying you know wash things over do you think you've basically had to develop quite a thick skin with stuff like that no I'm not sure you do really develop a thick skin I think you learn not to react so much publicly like keep your thoughts to yourself more and don't lose sleep or try not to lose sleep no I still feel even as an editor I don't have the confidence to give too many thoughts on Twitter. I still feel that Twitter's quite a nasty place. I'm a naturally incredibly open person, as you've probably already seen on this podcast. <laughs> so I guess I feel I feel like I have to edit myself, and that's not a na- that's honestly that's not a natural thing for me. I like openness. I like talking about stuff. I, I'm not someone who hides or keeps secrets, so, and I don't know whether that lends itself to journalism. <laughs> Or not. <laughs> it's just who I am. <laughs> I think it does. Yes. <laughs> Lends itself to other people interviewing me anyway. <laughs> I want to talk about the standard, but all I was going to say was I read um, your account of how you basically took, um, obviously leaving Vogue on, and you said yeah. that you went around to your sisters and you just turned to drink, um, which I think uh, a lot of people... <laughs> <laughs> you said they, they pushed the drink towards you <laughs> yeah <laughs> no it was like I was meant to be having dinner with George 
Osborne is the real story. And then I, I got my sister to ring him and said, because I literally was called into Nicholas Coleridge's office at like 6 p.m. And I thought, oh, God, OK, here the moment comes. And obviously, you know, you're leaving. You're waiting for that axe to fall. You want it to because, you know, if I'm being brutally honest, I was getting a leaving package, etc. I needed that. I was the uh, sort of, you know, I was bringing money into the family. But um, so then we all ended up going around to Sam and Dave's for dinner and George coming too. And yes, I mean, you know, quite a lot of wine was drunk that night. <laughs> I mean, come on, a stiff drink helps every time, right? <laughs> certainly did during the pandemic (laughs) I once lost a job and I and I definitely did this I did a very similar thing um not with uh the people you've discussed but um yeah definitely in terms of the alcohol levels yeah um yeah but during that meeting Um, we we didn't have uh the evening standard did not come up as a in in that meeting no it definitely did no it definitely did I was having dinner with George because I had worked at the standard for six years and I was speaking to him or wanted to speak to him about joining the the newspaper in some form. Uh, So no, it was discussed a lot that evening, actually, but quite drunkenly towards the end of the evening, with not a lot of clarity. And then as it was, I found out literally two days later, I was pregnant. And so I sort of stopped pushing for work at The Standard, if I'm honest, and just felt I had other things on my plate. And actually... The big thing was, having worked in a big company for a really long time, I did want to set up something myself. And I did, I had I had encountered so much digital, so many digital problems at Vogue, because I, I worked on digital a lot, actually, in my last five years there. And my mum's an entrepreneur, and my, you know, my sister runs her own business. So having a mum as an entrepreneur, it is a, it is a, it is a big influence on you. And I guess... I don't know whether this is a good way to run your life or not, but I do sometimes try and think, you know, what what do you want to think on your deathbed about what you've done with your life? And, you know, are there certain boxes you want to tick? And I suppose I did really want to see if I, having been in this big corporation for a long time, where you very much take on this persona of being the Vogue girl, and it is very strong, that, is that I needed a period before I joined another brand, as it were, to do something on my own. Um, And that did morph into this much I know, which was the... Gen Z and millennial news brand I, I, I set up with various tech funding within nine months of, of leaving Vogue. And I'd, I'd still say is the most formative uh, experience I've, I've, I've had in my life, actually. You won lots of investment and grants, it seemed. There was lots of interest in it. Yeah. But I suppose uh, it's almost a startup, isn't it? So did it feel, in a, in a way, it's back to basics, but were you, what surprised no, you? No, it's about- absolutely back to basics. And it's, 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 um, God, it's really hard to sum up what it's like running your own business. Uh, Do you suddenly uh, feel quite alone? Uh, Yes, you feel very alone. But you also, once you get over, and I wrote about this for the Times, actually, about a year in, my sort of first year of being an entrepreneur. And once you get over that wall of terror, because you literally do throw yourself off cliff. And I don't know whether other entrepreneurs have experienced this, but I certainly had lots of people share this. And and my sister, Samantha, was was a huge source of help, actually is that once you walk through that sort of wall of fear of doing this thing entirely on your own, which is raising money, gathering a team, delivering a brand, you know, everything you feel like you're just like climbing through sludge the whole time and you just have to keep going. I have to say you emerge from it with a kind of toughness and resilience that I think only raising your own business from nothing can teach you. And when we went into the pandemic in lockdown, 
one of the last things I was doing for the company. And this was before the standard had come up. So this was in March as we went into lockdown. You know, I, I was halfway through a big fundraise. And of course, the whole thing collapsed as the markets experienced their biggest drop you know, ever. And I had to, with my children suddenly at home, my husband runs two restaurants which were closing. So he was tearing his hair out. Uh, my kids are suddenly at home. We've got no childcare. And I am in the middle of a huge fundraise. We also got COVID at that time. And I'm literally from my sickbed re-raising this money, ringing every single investor, persuading them to come back on. And I did do it. And I went through 10 days of really hardcore due diligence for banks. I wouldn't want anyone to put themselves through that. But it does really nail a kind of steeliness in you that you that you know that whatever gets chucked at you, you will manage. You just have to be a fighter. Yeah. And that has certainly, having joined this newspaper, come and use. <laughs> so how do we go from the startup to obviously your new position? What, what were the wheels in motion? Why did you decide to make that jump? I knew the job was up for grabs. I took a long time to approach about it. You know, I had this company and I was very proud of it. And I was trying to work out what, you know, was this something. But I have wanted to be an editor from university days. It was something I have repeated to myself. You know, I so much wanted to be an editor. You know, I set up my own company. So that all started during lockdown. I started speaking to the standard. But I mean, I, I joined I joined the race to be editor quite late. And we've got a new chairman here and he's pretty tough. Uh, certainly put me through the ropes. I think part of that was he wanted to see, he knew the task ahead for us as a company and he knew our organisation was going to be tough. Yeah, he put me through the ropes certainly for six weeks. And then it just took a while for it to be announced. And I also had to extricate myself from my own company because it's, I mean, it's quite boring to explain, but when you take on money, there are certain clauses in your contract which meant that my investors had to let me go and Founders Factory, uh, for many reasons, not all that I agreed with, wanted me to give up a lot of my shares. And there are sort of two descriptions of me, one of which my, my husband thinks I came out of the womb with my fists up ready to fight. And I did fight hard <laughs> for my shares. I quite enjoyed the fact that they started off sending one man to negotiate with me then two, and this is all on Zoom, by the way, then three. And on the final negotiation, there were five men on the screen versus me. <laughs> Misjudged. <laughs> I, I took that as a compliment, actually. <laughs> I, would, I would definitely take that as a compliment. So you are now editor of The Standard. It's clearly a really testing time for the media industry more generally. Yeah. But The Standard, I think, particularly, if you, if you look at publications that uh, you know, facing some of the biggest challenges because of coronavirus. It feels that the standard is, is as a free sheet. So you want people to be out, potentially going to work, to offices and yeah. to advertising is in a, yeah. a difficult spot. So I was just wondering, what do you see as the future of the standard as a business model? I mean, do you think the current model is tenable? So just to explain a, a few things here. So back at the beginning of the lockdown, and this was under George, nothing to do with me, they switched within 24 hours to home delivery. So not only did they move all the staff home, because that's what we had, you know, the country had been ordered to work from home, but I do think it is staggering. Within 24 hours, they had switched to delivering to homes across London. And I think that was down to the staff. It was down to delivery. It was down to a guy called Richard Mead. And I, I remain immensely... I mean, I've read The Standard since I'm 18. So, I mean, I am immensely proud of The Standard. And I, I think that was an incredible thing to do because I remember that night we went into lockdown 
standing in Scrubs Park in the dark, feeling this sort of rising panic that we're about to be locked up. And I think if the standard had stopped appearing in some form or had collapsed at that stage, because believe me, it was discussed whether the standard could continue uh, in paper at that point. You know, the losses were immense. Advertising stopped overnight. Staff still needed to be paid. Delivery, home delivery was definitely more expensive at the beginning. We've actually got that down nicely now. So... To explain that, we are now still home delivering and we're on the streets. The home delivery model is actually great and I think that will remain within our output because the thing I suppose a lot of people don't understand is that when you pick up something on the tube, maybe only one of you reads it and puts it down. When you home deliver, your data to your advertisers is much more accurate. Plus, you're delivering to a whole household, so you're getting more readers. So the standards actually kept its readership up at 1.2 million which is a lot higher than many, many other newspapers operating um, in this country. I'm here to also make a digital turnaround because we make very good money from advertising. And yes, that is... Well, actually, advertising has just been coming back a lot. I mean, I don't know what's... Obviously, we don't know how... Uh, we're going to re- how, how advertisers are going to... How businesses are going to react in the, in the coming weeks. And I suspect it's not going to be great news, but... I am here with a new CEO to really amp up the digital uh, revenue. And my CEO's got great plans, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go into that here. But the standard is here to stay. I mean, all media is under huge strains at the moment. But I think what is interesting to note that many new media and new news brands wrote off legacy brands five years ago. And actually what you're seeing is the legacy brands are still the ones doing incredibly well. You've got the New York Times. uh, The Times is doing great. The FT. And people are looking at different models all the times. And my big thing is is developing closer relationships with users and opening conversation up with them. That's everything I did at This Much I Know. And that means opening lots of different channels on lots of different platforms. So more WhatsApp groups, more emails being sent out, much more live. You know, it's all got to be done on Zoom and recorded, better audio delivery. And also my thing is actually tackling the Googles and Apples of this world for their revenue. I mean, there's a big discussion. I don't mind saying that we, we have an incredible number of hits on Apple News. I mean, unbelievable. And I can tell you that the revenue we return, we get in return is pathetic. So I'm sitting there at the moment in big discussions is, well, why should we let Apple take this from us for such pathetic returns? And I think you do need to have the confidence to say, do you know what? I don't want your 80 million hits because they're not coming back to my organization. They're not joining the standard. They're not. So, you know, for the pathetic amount you're paying me, why, why should I keep benefiting your business? So all news organizations have got some big decisions to make about how and which way they want to face the future. But the paper is definitely here to stay. Now, just a few quick final questions. One was, I just wanted, you mentioned obviously starting your job in the middle of a pandemic. You've also had really difficult things to consider. So there are redundancies at the paper at the moment, I seem to going through. Have you found trying to like build team morale? Um, How have you gone about or even introducing yourself to your new colleagues? It's been tough, actually. There's been a brilliant core who have come in. I think it's really tough. And I think a, a lot of news organisations are going through this. A lot of businesses are going through this. There, there is no way around the toughness. There's still a huge amount of people here I've, I haven't met. I've tried to speak to people. Uh, there's just no getting around. It's not a nice process. It just isn't. And it's very hard to build morale. The ones I do have more close contact with, 
I keep trying to sell them that we, you know, we need to get over these humps and we can get to the point where we can start telling them all our new plans. And also, I think there is a message in that we are delivering, all news organisations are delivering a real service. There is a reason why the government is spending lots of money putting its advertising within us. They know that we are incredibly effective at spreading messages. I mean, yes, we criticise them heavily too, but the, the governments know that's part and parcel. Um, so I think a lot of journalists don't... Most people starting journalism now are not doing it for the huge wage packets. They're doing it because they really do believe in what they do. And I, and I, that has been my message from the moment that I got here, that I was going to protect our newsroom as much as possible. And that our, at our heart, that is what we are. We are a news organisation and react, we react very fast to what's going on in London. Um, final three things. First off, I just wondered, how did you find... It seems that in a way you started out in newspapers, in a way you're, you're returning to your roots through this role. But how did you find the general reaction when you were announced in this? Um, did, did you did you think that it was, you know, I, I think in, it was seemed broadly positive, but I think there's always a group of people who will say, oh, you know, that's a fashion journalist. It's not serious news, um, you, you know, which there is always a voice I knew around I, that. I just I knew I would contend with that. And I think there's two ways to think about it. Yes, I was a fashion journalist, but Vogue also celebrated entertainment, creativity, the art scene, the fashion scene. Those are all things and brought me into contact with many people who are absolutely intrinsic to that and a lot in London. Well, that is what London is. And we are, as a newspaper, as a news organisation, fighting to help the fashion world, the entertainment industry here, our theatres. So I think for people who thought that Vogue was not relevant are just, are just simply wrong. But I, I just didn't mind. I just think don't react, just prove by doing, you know, getting on and do your job. I just think as a general rule of life, just don't talk about it, just Get on with it. <laughs> I think you have visited number 10 this week, if I've been following your Twitter correctly. <laughs> yes, I went into uh, I went in to see Rishi Sunak. Yeah, I just I just wanted to, obviously, uh, as an editor, I think you had the interview Boris Johnson early on and things. I yeah. just wonder from your personal experience, obviously having a sister um, married to a prime minister, being close to a prime minister, do you think that you perhaps have a view of, I don't know, an acknowledgement of how difficult the job is, which perhaps maybe an outsider wouldn't. I, I wonder if it gives you any unique perspective. I think that it gives you the perspective that they are they are human beings. I think that does get that does get lost. And also that as commentators, we often commentate with hindsight. And you're not actually there being the one under pressure who is making those decisions. But that doesn't also stop me from giving them a hard time because I think in some cases you you have a right to say, I don't think you've, you are not handling this right. So, yeah, I think it does give you a bit of insight, but I, I don't think it makes me soft. But, yeah, I suppose I'm more sympathetic to the pressures they are under. Now, when it comes to, I suppose, politics, you had a very interesting column by George Osborne recently where he wrote his diary <laughs> of being a chancellor, which was in response to Sasha Swire's Brilliant book. column, I might say. Brilliant. Not just interesting, um, brilliant column. Yeah, br brilliant. I mean, that book, uh, which is obviously a, f a wife of a former Tory MP, has made loads of headlines. A lot of it's about people that you spent a lot of I'm time with. I'm amazed you've taken you this long to get around to this. <laughs> Slow build, Emily. <laughs> I wonder 
what you made of it. Do do you are you, are you surprised that um, someone would kind of do the type of tell thing? I mean, I was definitely shocked when I read it at some of the level of detail she'd put in, because it felt unnecessary. I think the book could have been as brilliant, and there were just a few few things she could have maybe uh, left out. Uh, I thought, well, I mean, I skim read it. I mean, a lot of it's just sort of repeating Hugo's various telephone conversations to people. And there are a few hilarious extracts, which the Times did. Uh, I think most people can sympathise that if you're having dinner with a great friend of yours and they're on your holiday, the fact that they're going up every night to actually write everything down, it's kind of weird. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it just is. But it is the price that you might pay in politics your life ceases to be private you don't expect it to come from such close quarters but you know I spoke to my sister last night she's uh you do develop a thick skin she's not losing any sleep over it and I suppose you sort of wonder what people's reasons are for doing it and Sasha I I really liked I I spent quite a bit of time with Sasha I, I, I thought she was great I really liked Hugo um I, I don't know. I mean, there's a, there's there's an, there's an acknowledgement. You sort of wonder why she did it. I think she was always a bit of a frustrated housewife, which I think is sad for women, actually. I think if you're feeling frustrated, you should go out and do something. And this is obviously the thing she did. It's just, do you have to write about your close friends to get yourself notoriety? But anyway, her comment, there's an acknowledgement, her list of acknowledgements at the back. I only spotted this last night and I, I thought it was worth mentioning. Um, she thanks lots of people, her daughters. And then she says, to all the Cameroons for not mentioning me or barely mentioning me in their memoirs. This is payback. <laughs> so it's more like they, want, they wanted and to I be in the conversation. And I noticed that hadn't emerged yet. So I thought I would leave you with that little titbit. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's funny. Lots of people would be relieved not to be in a memoir, but it seems not everyone well, I wasn't in David's memoir. I think I wasn't mentioned at all anywhere. Did I care? No, I definitely didn't. We'll just wait for your book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I know I was thinking, shit, should I keep a diary? Sorry, I swore. Should I be keeping a diary? And I thought, God, I can't be asked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can never quite do the effort. Now, Emily, we usually ask people what is the worst advice they've ever been given, but I think we might have had a slight miscommunication and perhaps suggested you need to tell us the worst advice you've given someone. So you can pick which to tell us. Okay, well, I've, I've got two. One is that I told Dave to trust his friends. <laughs> Clearly, that was terrible advice. <laughs> <laughs> the second one is more is more personal. Once a friend of mine came, um, and I try and think this weirdly when I'm writing editorials and doing our comment pages, is that you should look for the nuances in life, is that a friend of mine came and told me she was having an affair. And my immediate reaction was to be quite angry and to tell her that she must immediately give this man up. And actually, that wasn't, it wasn't the right advice. She was in a lot of pain. She knew this was a terrible thing on her marriage. And, you know, she was having a terrible time over it. And I think sometimes reading in between the lines and being a bit more sensitive to a situation is how we should react. And I do try and think about that in my editorial. I really try and think about the mental space people are in and try and react with the commentary we we provide and actually my harsh reaction to her I mean the advice was probably right yes she should end it with this man but it wasn't given in the right way and in the end I I, it cost us our very long friendship actually so I think I suppose the lesson is be careful what you say and how you deliver it thank you Emily and thank you for listening
And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk.